Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wounded Blue Hour. I am Randy Sutton. I am your host. I am a retired police lieutenant, the founder of an organization called the Wounded Blue, which uh, helps injured and disabled officers across this country, and the author of a number of books, including the soon-to-be-released Rescuing 911, The Fight for America's Safety. On this program, we discuss some very, very important topics. We are devoted to the physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being of the American law enforcement community. And this show has topics related to all of those. Now, I have a guest waiting for us in the uh, waiting room, but before we get to him, uh, I want to give you the law enforcement reality check that we do each week, where we do our end of watch memorial for those officers who gave their lives in the line of duty the previous week and the number of officers who have been shot. So, first of all, February, we're coming to the close of this month and 16 law enforcement officers have been shot during this month alone. Um, in addition to that, a number of officers gave their lives in the line of duty and we're going to honor them today with uh, the reading of the names and circumstances surrounding their deaths. We call it end of watch. The first is detention officer Kenneth Fowler of the Pontotoc County Sheriff's Office in Oklahoma. Detention officer Kenneth Fowler succumbed to injuries sustained on January 31st when he slipped on the ice in the parking lot of the County Justice Center. The area was experiencing an ice storm when he fell. He was transported to hospital, suffering from head injuries and hypothermia. He remained in a medically induced coma until succumbing on February 19, 2023. He served with the County Sheriff's Office for five years. Detention Officer Kenneth Fowler, Pontotoc County Sheriff's Office, Oklahoma, end of watch, Sunday, February 19, 2023. Police Officer James Mulbauer of the Kansas City Police Department in Missouri. Police Officer Jim Mulbauer and K-9 Champ were killed in a vehicle crash at 10.15 p.m. the intersection of Truman and Benton in Kansas City. A vehicle crashed into Officer Mulbauer and K-9 Champ while in their patrol vehicle. A pedestrian was also hit. K-9 Champ and the pedestrian died at the scene. Officer Mulbauer was taken to the hospital where he succumbed to his injuries. The driver that hit the police car was also injured and is in custody. Officer Mulbauer has served the Kansas City Police for 20 years. Police Officer James Mulbauer, Kansas City Police Department, Missouri, end of watch, Wednesday, February 15, 2023. Police Officer Julian Becerra, Fountain Police Department in Colorado. Police Officer Julian Becerra succumbed to injuries sustained nine days earlier when he fell from an overpass in Colorado Springs during a vehicle pursuit of carjacking suspects. The suspects had been pursued by multiple agencies over the course of several hours. They attempted to carjack a second vehicle and the vehicle was found partially disabled. All three occupants fled on foot with officers in pursuit. Officer Becerra <clears throat> was chasing one of the suspects when he fell from an overpass approximately 40 feet below. He was transported to a local hospital where he remained until succumbing to his injuries 
on February 11th. All suspects <coughs> excuse me, were apprehended. Uh, police Officer Julian Becerra, Fountain Police Department, Colorado, end of watch Saturday, February 11th, 2023. Police Officer Christopher Fitzgerald, Temple University Police, Pennsylvania. Police Officer Chris Fitzgerald was shot and killed while attempting to arrest a robbery suspect near West Montgomery in Philadelphia at 7.30 p.m. The officer uh, was shot by the subject in the head, and the suspect then attempted to steal his duty weapon, belongings, and patrol car, shooting him in the face several more times. Officer Fitzgerald was transported to Temple University Hospital, where he succumbed to his wounds. The man who shot him was arrested at his home. Officer Fitzgerald served with Temple University Police Department for two years. Police Officer Christopher Fitzgerald, Temple University Police, Pennsylvania, end of watch, Saturday, February 18, 2023. Police Officer Jeffrey Red, Memphis Police Department, Tennessee. Police Officer Jeffrey Red succumbed to gunshot wounds sustained two weeks earlier while responding to a suspicious person call at the Poplar White Station Library. Officers, including Officer Red, had responded to a nearby business regarding a trespasser. Approximately 30 minutes later, the subject became engaged in an altercation with a citizen uh, inside the Poplar White Station Library. As Officer Red, another officer, attempted to contact the subject outside of the library, the man produced a handgun and opened fire on them. Officer Red was shot and critically wounded before the other officer returned fire and killed the suspect. Officer Red was transported to Regional One Hospital and remained in critical condition until succumbing to his wounds. Several years before being shot, Officer Red had been critically injured when he was struck by a vehicle. While on duty, he returned to duty filing, uh, following an extensive recovery period. Police Officer Jeffrey Red, Memphis Police, end of watch February 18th, 2023. Each of these officers gave their lives in the line of duty, serving and protecting. That is your reality check for this week. Uh, my guest today um, is going to have a lot to talk about when it comes down to sustaining an injury and taking a hell of a long time to recover from it. Uh, it he's, got, he's an amazing guy, uh, James Mao. I'm going to read a little bit from his bio. He uh, served with the United States Army for eight years as a paratrooper and also as a military police officer. He joined the uh, Phoenix Police Department and the Chandler Police Department, and he was medically retired in 2017 after suffering grievous injuries. He was an academy instructor, and he also served with the U.S. State Department in Afghanistan, spending 13 months there with the U.S. military training them. He is also the owner of Ethos Productions, uh, a company that produces faith-promoting experiences through multimedia. He's also an author of, uh, of several books and is a best-selling author on Amazon. I welcome James Mao to the show. James, thanks for joining me. That's Jason. No, no that's good. <laughs> Great job, Randy. <laughs> Jason. <laughs> Jason, welcome to the show. We'll try that again. Thank you, Randy. I appreciate it, brother. Thank you. And thank you for everything that you do for us, for the fallen, for the for the blue line. 
Um, I've been following you for a while now, and I'm super impressed, and I'm just grateful that there's somebody out there speaking up for us. So thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, Jason, let's talk about you for a few minutes. Let's talk about what your your uh, history was. you got a hell of a resume. Uh, you've done a lot of things in your life relating to the public safety and service. So give us the um, uh, tell us a little bit about your military career and then why you decided to join law enforcement. Sure. Uh, well, I've always wanted to be a cop. I mean, what boy in America doesn't grow up at one time, you know, playing cops and robbers and, and dreaming about, you know, driving a, a police car and helping people. And that that dream just never left. And I've always wanted to do that. Um, when I got uh, when I when I graduated from high school, I became a Mormon missionary and I got done with that and I came back uh, to Arizona where I live here in Phoenix. And I really didn't have any um, college or any aspirations. And I was just kind of treading water. And uh, I, I knew I wanted to be a cop, but I didn't have any experience or I was 21 years old and I didn't feel ready to, to commit to something like that. And I really didn't know what to do. But uh, fortunately, and this was back in 1991, fortunately, I woke up one morning and a pretty lady on CNN said we had just went to war with Saddam Hussein. And, uh, and I said, wow, that looks like a lot of fun. And so I, uh, I decided to join the army and become a paratrooper and just kind of be that guy and wanted to have experiences and adventures in my life. And, and, uh, and as I was sitting there talking to the recruiter at the, uh, in the uh, recruiting station for the army, he says, well, you know, you want to be that guy, you want to go to ranger school, you want to do all that cool stuff, jump out of airplanes. What, uh, have you thought about what you wanted to do later on in your life? And I said, well, obviously I've always wanted to be a cop. And he kind of got this grin on his face and he goes, man, if I got a job for you, how about if you can jump out of airplanes and be a cop at the same time? And I, and he said that and I kind of giggled inside. And, uh, and so I became a paratrooper and a military police officer. And I got to do a lot of really cool stuff when I was in the army, a lot of stuff, normal military police officers don't get to do. I, I was a bodyguard for a while. I worked counter narcotics with JTF six out of Hawaii. Uh, and uh, the, the culmination of my career is that I was one of the team sergeants for the Army SRT, which is the military's version of a SWAT team. And so I spent several years doing that and, and just had the time of my life. Um, did that for about eight years, and then I had to make the choice whether I was going to make that a career, make, make that my life, or get out and try something else. And I had two kids at the time and, and married, and, and uh, it, was, it was really tasking being gone all the time and training and everything. And, and so I made the choice to, to get out of the military. And I had some connections at the time because I was working as also on the Army SRT. I was also working JTF-6 and um, Joint Task Force 6, which is a counter-narcotics task force out of Honolulu, Hawaii. And we, we strapped with um, the U.S. Marshals and the DEA and the FBI. They had a joint counter-narcotics um, task force. And, and I got to know the U.S. Marshal for the Hawaiian Islands, and he put in a recommendation, and I tried out to become a U.S. Marshal. And went through all the testing and everything and had a date for Glencoe, uh, but, and then started out process from the military. You know, I'm going to perfect transition from what I was doing to, to being a U.S. Marshal. And, and uh, about that time, the, the government shut down for quite a period of time because the politicians couldn't figure out what they wanted to do. And so I, and that included nobody going to Glencoe. To, to, for the um, for the for the training, and so I kind of panicked. And since I didn't have a job and I was leaving the military, 
I just kind of shotgunned my resume out to every law enforcement agency from my home state in Arizona. And the first people to call back was a suburb of Phoenix, which is the city of Chandler. And so I started working for the city of Chandler as a police officer. And I was on their SWAT team for many years. I was a, an instructor at the academy. I was uh, on street crimes, narcotics, gangs, you know, you name it. I did all the really fun stuff. Um, how, long did, how long did you serve with Chandler? I was with Chandler for about eight years. And then uh, I had an opportunity. The State Department contacted me and wanted to know if I'd be interested in being a civilian contractor because I had the combination of military tactical and law enforcement tactical experience and also I, uh, the instructorships done, uh, from the academy. And they asked me if I wanted to go to Afghanistan and, and uh, help train the Afghan army into uh, their soldiers into becoming police officers and, and doing other stuff in Afghanistan. And I said, you, you're going to give me buckets of money and I get to kill the Taliban? Where do I sign? <laughs> you know? And so... Uh, I did that. I was in. Uh, I did a tour in Afghanistan. I was in a, uh, the western part of Afghanistan in a city called Herat, Afghanistan, um, which is right up against the Iranian border there. And so everything from Turkmenistan, the Iranian border, on down to the Helmand province was my AO. And I spent a couple of months working at the, the National Police Academy in Herat. And uh, that's the psychological equivalent of herding cats. They... Uh, that was that was interesting and, and it, it wasn't working out. And so I begged and, and pleaded for a different job and I ended up becoming a traveling mentor and advisor and I would go and live and work with the the better not the better ones, but the, the mountain tribes and the and the village elders and the warlords. I would embed with them for days at a time and live with them and work with them and help train their local forces and we would do all kinds of fun stuff and and I did that for about thirteen months and then um, I, I came back home and got picked up with the Phoenix Police Department and uh, just was happy as a little little uh, pig in mud for, <laughs> for no, uh, no pun intended. Um, just working in South Phoenix, which is the, uh, the place to be if you want to be a cop. And that's why I ended up getting wounded. Okay, so let's talk about this now. How long were you with Phoenix before you were severely injured? Uh, it's about seven or eight years. Okay, so you you were to, you had a total of about sixteen years in policing in 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 the uh, in Arizona, seventeen years, yes. something like that. Okay, can you talk about the circumstances of your injury? Yeah, it was uh, it was one of those classic Arizona nights where it's midnight and it's about hundred <clears throat> degrees out, and I had just finished working a full ten hour shift. I had second shift, and I was uh, I was pulling into the precinct there in South Phoenix. And I had, you know, caught all my bad guys and done all my paperwork and everything my lieutenant wanted me to do to make sure that I was good for the night. And I was uh, just about ready to push that magic button on our computer monitor right there that tells everybody out in Copland that Mr. Jason is done for the night. And I'm just about ready to push that button to start unloading my vehicle when I get a call. Third shift officers just up the street are in a, in a chase and they're chasing a bad guy. This is one of those really bad guys that we need to catch. And so I, I, have an, I have a choice, you know, I can push that button, I can go home, nobody's going to care. You know, I've done my 10 hours of contractually obligated work and no one's going to say anything or I can turn my patrol car around and I can get involved in this chase, which is happening literally just up the street. Well, this is what I do. This, I'm, a, I'm a sheepdog. This is, I catch bad guys. And so instead of pushing that magic red button, I turned my patrol car around, I got involved in this chase and it turned into a foot chase. And uh, I ended up behind this guy as we're running. And as I was running, I felt a, a really powerful pain in my leg. 
uh, where my hamstring is, where, where my leg meets my butt, right there with that connection point. It was a really, really, really strong pain. And as I kept running, it hurt more. And I was thinking to myself, man, if I'm going to wake up in the morning with a pulled hamstring muscle, this knucklehead's going to have my bracelets on when he goes to jail. He's going to know that I'm the one that caught him, right? And so that made me want to run even harder. And the harder I ran, the more it hurt. And the more it hurt, the more I wanted to catch this guy. And so it got to the point where I was just gumbying my leg behind me, just trying to keep him in sight, calling out where he is. The helicopter shows up and there's more patrol cars coming and everything. And he realizes he's not going to get away. So he does exactly what a, a triple strike career criminal does in a situation like that. He turns around on me and squares up on me like a boxer. Well, I'm moving just as fast as I can. So I hit him like a linebacker and we go down in the dirt and we just start having at each other. And, and it was a it was a proper scrap. It was pretty good scrap. And I got my handcuffs on him and I rolled him over in the dirt and got up over the top of him like Randy Macho Man Savage. I said, where are you going, Billy? I'll tell <laughs> you, you're going nowhere. And that's when it felt like I'd just been shot. This amazing white hot pain goes shooting up my spine and down both my legs. And it hurt so bad that it just it sucked the air out of my lungs and I couldn't form a, a cohesive thought. I couldn't figure out what was happening. I knew I couldn't move my legs. And I knew I was really hurt, but I knew I hadn't been shot either. And so I'm trying to figure out what happened. And the first first thought that came to my mind was, did I just tase myself? And so I looked down and my taser is still intact and I can't make sense to why I can't move. Well, the other officers finally show up and the Sarge walks up to him and he sees me and he, he goes, man, you should probably go to the hospital. And so end up in the hospital, long story short. Um, what I had done is I had completely somehow during the chase and the fight had completely detached both of my hamstring muscles from my pelvis bone. So both the right and the left leg, both hamstrings ripped completely off somehow during the fight. Ow. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, for the, for the listening and viewing audience here at America Out Loud, and if you're listening on iHeartRadio, this is this is something that I wanted to I want to really um, uh, talk about because when we think about officers being injured, we always think I mean what's the first thing we think about an officer was shot, yep. but in both in the in the in the fatal capacity and also in in debilitating injuries that often lead to disabling injuries. There are a, a ton of different ways the cops are becoming disabled. There's traffic accidents. There's just like what you are talking about. You know, it is a physically demanding job that has a great deal of danger from from physic, physical um, activities as well as, as accidents of all kinds. So what you experienced um, is something that, that officers around the country are experiencing when you're talking about foot pursuits, vehicle pursuits, or all kinds of other ways that you can become severely injured in the line of duty. Now, so you, I mean, you're talking about hamstring muscles. You're talking about an incredible uh, recovery time here. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, um, it, uh, what ended up, it, it took a little bit of time for them to finally decide and figure out what they wanted to do with me um, just because of the nature of the injury and, and, and the nature of, of, of the, the people that I work for. And by the time they figured out what they wanted to do with me, they realized that, that this was, 
going to be a, a very, very long process. And I actually lost the ability to walk um, during this process. And I was bedridden for months and months. And, and it was about three years before I was going to be able to know if I would ever walk assisted, unassisted or, or at all. Um, each, and they required extensive surgery to reattach the hamstring to the pelvis bone. And each surgery takes a year to recover from. And they had to do it twice. And I couldn't do any physical therapy or, or recuperation after the first surgery because the other leg was hurt. And so I had the first surgery and then I had to just be motionless and still for a year. And then I had the second surgery and I had to be motionless and still for a year. And then a year's worth of physical therapy before they could even begin to evaluate me physically, whether I was going to be physically capable of returning to duty. Wow. Some, yeah. And there were some other things that happened to me um, right after I was wounded. And right after we figured out how bad it was, my wife divorced me. Oh, geez. And I had, <laughs> yeah, I had a, a, a traumatic series of events happen in rapid succession. And by the time I hit rock bottom, I was homeless. I was unemployable. I was divorced, crippled, and financially ruined all at the same time. And I was basically lying in a crockpot of my own emotional filth, unable to even move to get up to stop any of it from happening. That is, I mean, I don't even know what to say. That is, every everything that could possibly go wrong had gone wrong in your life then. And in a very short amount of time, it all was just, it all just fell apart. And I just fell until I smacked the bedrock. And that's where I laid. All right. Before we get into um, what happened after that, I want to take a little commercial break from the people that, for the people that, that uh, make this show possible. So <laughs> I want to talk about, you know, everything that, that is, that we do here um, at the, uh, on this show is to um, identify issues that that law enforcement officers have and and positively affect them uh, with products that we have. So the first thing I want to talk about is uh, thinbluedefend.com. Thinbluedefend.com is an app that every police officer in America should have. Actually, every Police agencies should give this app to their cops. It was designed by a Georgia Bureau of Investigations senior investigator who had who had investigated uh, many many on uh, uh, on the job uh, critical incidents, including shootings, officer involved shootings by police, and he realized that there was a a gap in the ability for police officers to. Uh, remember all of the things that they needed to remember when it, you're defending yourself in a use of force situation. And so he created this amazing app and he's been defining it and redefining it. And now it is amazing. I've seen it. Uh, it's um, in use by a lot of different police agencies. He's out there um, tirelessly talking about it because he knows that this can save careers. So go to thinbluedefend.com, thinbluedefend.com, check it out. Doug Parker, who, who uh, created it, um, is absolutely devoted to law enforcement, and, uh, and he's made it, made it very, very affordable. Um, if you're a police agency uh, supervisor or administrator, take a look at it for your people. Go to thinbluedefend.com. All right, let's go back to, let's go back to your, 
at this point, you have you have just faced every incredible, terrible set of circumstances that that most of us can conceive of. You've been horribly injured. You don't know if you're ever going to walk again. You're in the midst of this pain. Your wife divorces you. You lose your financial stability. You become homeless. And you don't have, I mean, so, I mean, everything that that could possibly go wrong in your life has gone wrong. Tell me how you dealt with that. Well, when you get to that point, Randy, you're left with two choices. It's victory or death. That's all I had left. Um, but I have spent my entire adult life as an apex predator. I hunt armed men as my occupation. I'm a problem solver. You have to be a problem solver to, to do what we do. And this was this was my last problem to solve. And as I laid there, unable to even move, both of those options, victory and death, made powerful, powerful arguments. And there were days when death was winning that argument. And, and there were times when I thought about, you know, ending it all in the easiest and quickest way was to put a bullet in my mouth. The only reason I didn't is because my mom would probably be the first person to find me. And I had been to way too many suicides and I knew exactly what she was going to walk in on. And I couldn't do that to her. All right. Before, so before we go, before we go on, we have a hard break for just a minute. And then I really want to go into this. So let's take, let's take just one quick break before we go into um, yep. how you dealt with this. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. You already know Genesis plus HOCL is your best defense against viruses. But did you also know it's the most powerful weapon for eliminating airborne mold too? Customers are raving about the Genesis Fogger's ability to tackle mold problems and the bad smells that go with them. And we all know mold is a hazard to your health. There's no airborne invader that Genesis can't handle. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. AmericaOutloud.com, seven amazing years. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio. 
the liberty and justice for all. Okay, we're back. And, you know, there is a suicide epidemic in law enforcement, as you well know. And now you are at, at, the, le- at, the, at the time in your life where you are seriously considering suicide. And the thought that your mom would be the one to find you was one of those moments where that reality set in and you realized that, that this would affect her. Yeah, it wasn't just me at that point. It would have affected my children. It would have affected my coworkers. Those that, that at the time I didn't realize cared for me, but later on I come to realize there were people that actually were there for me if I had sought the help. But I was so hurt and so broken and so deep inside my own emotional cave that that was, that was the only option that I had left, that, or, or so I thought. Um, and just that image of my, my poor mother who had Parkinson's disease at the time, walking in and seeing the mess from somebody eating a bullet uh, was just too much for me. I couldn't do that to her. So I, I said, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And so then I started thinking about what victory looks like and what that truly means. And, that, and, and if I was truly going to be who I claim to be, a warrior, then it was time for me to warrior up. It was time for me to stop saying that I'm a warrior and start acting like a warrior. And what does that truly mean? And it doesn't have nothing to do with the fact that I carried guns or did push-ups or, or boxed or anything like that. It was about how I lived my life, my mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual attitude towards things, my determination. You know, you don't have to be a, a, a you know on the tip of the spear to be considered a warrior. It's 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 how you live your life. And and I've been calling myself one of these for years and years. And and so I said, well, victory is going to mean that that there's a plan, there's a reason for all of this. And and I go back to my, I went back to my Christian faith and my belief in God, and that if there is a God in heaven, then He's perfect. And if He's perfect, then He's created a plan for this. There's a reason for everything. And if there's a plan and a reason for everything, then what I'm going through is part of that plan. And I have to learn to trust. And for the first time in my entire life. I absolutely trusted God, you know, and I said, well, you know what, God, if if you're up there and this is real, then I'm going to give you all my pain because there's nothing I can do about it. And so what I did is I wrote on a little piece of paper and I stuck it to the bookcase next to where I was laying, because at that time, all I could do was look up. I could look right and I could look left. And that was it. And on this little piece of paper, I wrote goals for the day. Wake up, survive, go to bed. And that is all I allowed myself to do. Everything else I just gave to that higher power. When I would be sitting there and I would be thinking about my divorce and how I should take in the house and my dog and, and everything, there was nothing I could do about it. And so I just said, you know what, Heavenly Father, I'm giving you that. All I'm going to focus on right now is waking up, surviving, and go to bed. And then I would just mark my time by my meals. I would do whatever I had to do to survive until lunch. And then I would give myself a break and I would eat lunch. And then I would do whatever I had to do, physical, mental, emotional, or spiritual, to survive until dinner. And every other pain, whether it was financial or emotional, or or the only thing I couldn't give to him because it wouldn't leave was the the, the PTSD. And I just had to sit there and, and fight through that on a daily basis. But everything else was uh, 
was was just I just like handed a briefcase and I said, here, I'm not worried about it. Whatever happens, happens. I'm trusting that everything will work out. I'm a good person. I've lived a good life. Uh, you know, I, I, I tried to love God and love my fellow man the best I can. I've been a servant to the people and I'm going to trust that everything will work out. And then I just put my head down and went forward with that. Well, the question I have is, <clears throat> you're so debilitated. Who's taking care of you at this time? <laughs> strangers. <laughs> really? No, I, I, yeah, a lot of, a lot of strangers were taking care of me. Uh, I, I wasn't really, well, I wasn't really being taken care of. And I can't really go into that because I, I have signed a non-disclosure agreement with those people that were responsible for stuff like that because um, there was a settlement at the end. And so, uh, but what I can say is that I, I ended up in my mom's home in her in uh, on a child's daybed in her sewing room is where I finally ended up. But she had Parkinson's disease and she couldn't really get around or feed me and stuff like that. So literally I had people from her church come by with food. I had strangers come by and take care of me. Um, other than that, I was just left alone in that, in that bed. So I want, I this just, is, this is where I want, this is where I want to really um, emphasize, you know, my organization, the wounded blue, which this show is completely devoted to um, mm -hmm. is made up of, of, of officers who have been shot, stabbed, beaten, run over, screwed up and screwed over. Right. And what we have seen, the reason we created this organization was because so many cops have gotten severely injured and then basically been thrown away. Everybody thinks that if you're a police officer and you get severely injured in the line of duty, you're going to get the best medical attention. You're going to get a, a, a decent paycheck that will, that will see you through till you can either return or get um, a, a disability pension. But that's not the reality in many, many places. Now, I know that you can't talk about it, but we can all sur surmise from, from this conversation that you were left high and dry by the very, the very institutions that were supposed to, that you, that you gave so much to protect. And now you're living in, on your mom's daybed counting on the, the generosity of strangers to come feed you. And I think that this is a really, really critical, critical part of this conversation. But you survived this through, the, through the, the generosity and the, the love of people that you didn't even know. How did, how did that make you feel? It was humbling. It was extremely humbling. And, and I've always been... You know, I've always been a sheepdog. I've always been a giver. I've always put myself last. Uh, as long as everybody else is healthy and happy and safe, then I worry about myself. And so to to be in such a vulnerable position where I can't get up and I have people that I don't even know their first names and they're walking in there and they're saying, hey, we just wanted to we just wanted to bring you some soup. You know, we've, we, we heard what happened and, and we feel for you. Um, it was incredibly humbling and it was it was a learning experience and it burned a lot of that nonsense away and and i got a better understanding of what's what's most important and valuable in life and and you know i, I lost my identity as a as a you know if you're a good cop that's who you are you don't stop being a cop when you go home it's how people introduce you when you go to parties hey this is bill he's a cop you know or and and they all know who you are so 
when that's taken away from you and that's all that you've known, that's what you've built your identity around. And then everything that you do for your coping mechanisms, you exercise, you work, you go out, you eat, the things that you do to, to suppress the monsters inside of you, um, that was all taken away from me too. And so to have all of that just burning inside of me and not being able to move was incredibly humbling. And there was a lot of tears shed and there was a lot of, a lot of deep reflection and thought and a lot of time just alone with, with who I am up here and getting right with this guy because I wasn't, I wasn't right after all of that. Um, yeah, it was just, it was incredible just to see what just that little bit of generosity can do for a person and how that literally saved my life. Okay, so uh, in the, we, we could literally talk about this for hours and I would love to, but we, have a, we do have time constraints. So how long were you in that vulnerable position? And then how did you, how did you re regain your health? Well, each surgery takes about a year to recover. And so I had to, I had to lay motionless for months as scar tissue formed around where they reattached my hamstring to my pelvis bone. Uh, and so I was completely motionless and helpless for about four or five months. And then I slowly could sit up and eventually I could use a, a, a walker and some, and some crutches to get around the house. But I was basically homebound and stuck for that first year because I couldn't do any physical therapy on the, the leg they just did surgery on because my other leg was severely injured too. Right. And so after going through that first year and experiencing all those emotions and having that process, I knew on the top of my head that I had to do it all over again for my other leg. And so there was that pain hanging back there. And so the second year came around, I had the second surgery done right back to where I started, completely immobilized, helpless. Um, and that took, you know, four or five months to where I could get up and move around again. And just that thought in the back of my mind, like I may never walk normal again. I may never be able to bear my weight. I may never, never be able to do anything that defined me as who I was. And that took another year and then a year of physical therapy to learn to walk again, to learn how to use those hamstring muscles. And then every other part of your body, once a major muscle group like your hamstrings is out of the picture, you know, you still have to function. And so every other part of my body changed their natural alignment to, to replace the fact that I didn't have hamstrings. And so I had back issues, I had knee issues, I had my shoulders were bad. There was all kinds of secondary problems that come with a, with a serious injury like that. And so I was, it was, it was about three years total before I could have any, there was a, before I saw a light at the end of the tunnel, like maybe there's a chance that I might be able to, to function again. And I mean, that's, that it literally sounds like forever. And then it felt like it. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. So tell us about the recovery. Oh, uh, physical therapy, the, the physical therapists that I have are just amazing people. Um, I happen to get lucky enough and, and get to work with the physical therapists that work with the Arizona Cardinals. They patch those guys back up. And so they knew they, they knew some amazing stuff and they got me up and moving. But that was only that was just my physical. I was I was emotionally burnt to the core. There was there was nothing left in me and I had turned into a, turned into a, to a hermit and I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to communicate with anybody. Uh, I gained about 50 pounds, uh, just from the sedimentary lifestyle and, and medicating with food. 
because I couldn't work out. I couldn't go run. I couldn't do jujitsu. I couldn't do any of the things that, that made me happy. And so, and then my body became sick. I ended up becoming a diabetic because of that. Um, and then I watched the diabetic kill my dad and my sister. And I figured, well, it's going to kill me now. So that was one more thing that I had to, I had to deal with. Um, it was just a bag of bag of hurt. And I was trying everything. And the only thing that helped me was finding a local support group that was made by cops and was run by cops. So there was no, there was no uh, alignment with the, with the, with the <clears throat> precinct or the, or the uh, police department. There was a low, no alignment with uh, the insurance companies. They, they didn't have to report anything and just sitting there and being able to, to vomit up the poison around people that completely understand how I feel. And you, you build that connection and that's, that's what got me through. Okay, was, great. So let's, let's talk about this for a moment. Um, it's what you're talking about is peer support. And yeah. peer, peer support is one of the most critical aspects of surviving a law enforcement career, whether you're, especially when you're injured. And that's, that's exactly what the Wounded Blue, um, literally the core mission is peer support. And it is why more than 14,000 American law enforcement officers have reached out to the Wounded Blue and taken advantage of the people that, that are part of this amazing organization who, like you, were severely injured and now want to give back. And, yep. and that, that ability is touching lives across the country. So, I mean, you are literally the poster child for the success of peer support, if you will. Yeah, it was because of peer support that I found the courage to start writing books. It was because of peer support that I found the courage to start telling my story. And now I go all over the country um, and do seminars and lectures and I talk in high schools and churches and corporate whatever about overcoming adversity and that uh, rags to riches, rebuilding your life because I'm healthier, happier, richer. I have a bigger family now. Everything is so much better now than the day that I got injured that um, the I can I've experienced that path and I've been to, I'm at the top of the mountain now and I can see the the blessings and the benefits of allowing yourself to heal and spitting out that poison and finding those people that you can talk to that I advocate for that all the time now before we go on I want to talk about another another product that um, has been uh, so beneficial for law enforcement officers across the country and also for the wounded blue. Um, you know, one thing that I, uh, that I have discovered, and it was actually pointed out to me by a guy named uh, <clears throat> uh, Pete, who uh, has a product called uh, officerprivacy.com. I had no idea how easy it is to find personal information about me on the internet. I'm talking about where I live. I mean, really, really, critical officer safety stuff. And then Pete James over at Officer Privacy demonstrated to me that, Randy, I can find you in about nine seconds. And it was amazing to me. I didn't know it. So he created OfficerPrivacy.com. And what they do is incredible. He employs nothing but uh, former and, and active duty cops. They actually have developed a way to go into the internet and erase the uh the the uh information that can find you and i there's there's a, a incredible databases out there that are uh that are that are utilized to to find you and can be very very 
uh, uh, threatening to you and your family. So uh, go to officerprivacy.com. Check it out. It's not expensive. Um, it's, it is, for me, it's a, it's a no-brainer. Go to officerprivacy.com. Check it out. Contact uh, Pete James and his folks over there and uh, make sure that you and your family are safe. All right, so let's go back for a moment, Jason. <coughs> After three years of, of incredible pain, of um, suicidal thoughts, of trying to build yourself back into the warrior that you know you are, um, you were successful. And, and you, 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 you know, from the depths of despair, you, you redefined yourself. And now life is looking pretty damn good, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, the, I enjoy the sunrises now a lot better. Yeah. So for those, I mean, there are people that are listening now who are going through challenges. Um, some through physical challenges, some through emotional, psychological uh, challenges, some all three. What is your, I, I know you go over and talk about this all over the country. What are your, what are your, what's your advice to them? Oh, how much time do I have? <laughs> uh, not, not long. <laughs> uh, the first thing I would tell them to do is get right with God. And that's, that's, that's what worked for me, is I had to get right with the boss. Um, and it doesn't have to be the Christian God. Be accountable to a higher power and understand that there's a purpose for you to be here on this earth. And remember why it is that you chose this profession. You know, it, you chose this profession to do hard things, to, to stand in the gap, to, to be the only person making good choices, even if you're the only one in the, in the room, be that person making a good choice. And, and have that accountability, have that belief system that there is something out there that is that is rooting for you, that you weren't sent down here to fail, that you're not God's comic relief. You know, there's purpose to everything. And and to remember that that iron sharpens iron and that, you know, the only way to, to purify metal is to heat it through heat pressure and time, to bang it on an anvil and to put it back in the furnace. And that, that's a metaphor for your life. And the only way to grow bigger, faster, and stronger is heat, pressure, and time. And you have to sometimes just let the process work itself out. Breathing is super important uh, because you can't shoot, could, sh can't shoot, uh, can't move, shoot, or communicate if you're not breathing. And those are the three foundational principles of our job is to be able to shoot, move, and communicate. And you can't do that unless you're breathing. And so if breathing is important. Find some rest, find a place to, 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 um, to, to, to meditate and to work on yourself. Find somebody you trust and spit out the poison, okay? There are people out there that genuinely love you and will listen to you. Don't find somebody that will fix the problem. Find somebody that will listen to what you're saying and spit out the poison and know that it's okay to say that you're hurt. It is okay to be in pain. It is okay to feel victimized. It is okay for that. What is not okay is that you quit. That is not okay. That you get back up in the morning and you try again. And you try again. And if you fail 10,000 times, then that just means you found 10,000 ways to not do it and you keep trying. Every single person that ever discovered gold 
hit the rock with the pick one more time than the other guy. Everybody else quit. He hit the rock with the pick one more time and found gold. So be that miner that hits the rock one more time and finds your gold. Find a good support group. If you don't have a good support group, then start a good support group. Call the Wounded Blue. See if they've got somebody in your area that can help you out. Because there's nothing as powerful as sitting in a room of people where you don't have to explain anything. They understand. You know, you're sitting in a room and you're talking about, you know, you're talking about something that is in your mind and it's the image of a dead kid at a traffic accident. And we've all been there. We've all seen the, the, the grotesity of a, 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 a dead baby, whether it's a traffic accident or, or drowning or an accident or shooting or whatever. It's just, especially as a husband and a father, is there something. But when I would go into like a doctor, or I would go into my, my bishop or I would talk to somebody about that image. They'd want to know what happened. What did it look like? How did you feel? But I went into that support group and I said it was a dead baby. And they all just went. Yep. Right. Right. Sure. I didn't have to. I didn't have to do anything else. And that just released all of these emotions. And I could cry in, in a safe place where I didn't feel judged. And I could laugh and I could tell jokes, you know, because cops, we got this weird sense of humor, right? <laughs> and 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 it was just it was just something so spiritual and so pure about being in a group of people that knew exactly what I was feeling and understood exactly what I was going through because every single person there had also experienced that. And they were on their own path. And they all had recommendations and and they all had advice and counsel and and sometimes all they could do is just hug me. And that's what I needed at that moment in time. But that's what saved me was that peer support. Did you ever go back to work? They uh, they wanted to give me a desk job, <laughs> but they forgot that the, the the point of injury was on my bum, right, right. where my leg and my butt meet. They had to, 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 to reattach and they had to cut that smiley face crease where your butt is, lift the whole butt muscle up, dig down inside, drill holes in my pelvis, pull my hamstring up, reattach it with some bailing twine and then I had to hold completely still for a year. Then they had to do it to the other leg. So I have these giant injuries right on my butt. And so I couldn't sit. I couldn't sit and do any desk work. And that's when they made the determination that, hey, you can't wear You can't put a uniform on. You can't do desk work. We're just going to medically retire you at this point. This is a topic that that is uh, is so misunderstood by the public. Um, the what happens when an officer cannot work anymore due to an on-duty injury. You know, yeah. people, and, and this is something that I deal with all the time as the founder of the Wounded Blue, is, is trying to relate to those who might want to be a donor to the organization what the, the reality is that is facing these officers. And it's really hard for people to conceive of the fact that, wait a minute, you can get severely injured in the line of duty and basically be tossed aside? How does, how does that happen? How is that possible? And the unfortunate reality is that, is that this is, this is a, um, so much more common than anyone believes and, and is literally almost unbelievable. So um, I, was, I was surprised and, and shocked actually how many in this support group, because it wasn't just this one, there was a, a, a cohort of support groups of the same, same group that were all over the valley. And we had 150 officers from just locally, the Phoenix metropolitan area that were involved in some aspect in, in this support group. 
Yeah, it's incredible. Um, so uh, we we are getting close to our time, but um, talk about your your book real quick. So everybody kept saying this was a fascinating story, and I should write it down. And so I did, and uh, I wrote uh, my autobiography. It's called Weighed and Measured. Um, you can find it on Amazon. You just type my name in, Jason Mao. Um, and I got the writing bug after, uh, and I wrote a historical fiction series of books. And I also co-wrote a book about healing. It's called Healing Through Broken Relationships. And and fortunately, that book kind of took off, and it, it actually became an Amazon number one bestseller. So all of those all of those can be found if you just Amazon my name, Jason Mel. And you are also doing speaking engagements around the country. I am. Yeah, I. I, uh, they're, they're making a new television show and it's kind of like American Idol, but instead of for singing and dancing, it's for public speaking. And they had tryouts. It's called the Great American Speak Off. And they had tryouts here in Phoenix. And I went and tried out. And after two rounds of, of, uh, trials, I actually won the golden ticket and, uh, went right to the finals in Miami. And, uh, they had 27,000 applicants and it whittled it down. And I ended up making the top 10. That's um, incredible. Wow. The, uh, and I, I, I didn't know I could, I had public speaking in me, but once I started down this path and I started, people wanted to know how, because like you said, how in the world you had all those things happening to you at the same time. You were divorced, crippled, and bankrupt, all of it at the same time. Any one of those wouldn't have been enough for one person to check out. You had them all at the same time. And I said, well, it's just my warrior way. It's my warrior ethos. And people don't have never lived the way that we live and experience what we've experienced. So that's a foreign concept to them. So they, they asked me if I would come in and explain that to their children. So I'd go to their home and explain my way of thinking. They said, that's great. Would you come back and say that to our entire church? Sure, I guess. And before you know it, I'm keynote speaking at colleges and then I'm in front of 7,000 people and I'm doing multi-day seminars and, and, and I'm on you know, the Great American Speak Off and it's just, I'm just, just being me telling my story. So how do people, if somebody wants to book you for a speaking gig, a speaking engagement, how do they find you? They can find me at thewarchapters.com. It's all one word, thewarchapters.com. And that's the website where you can see how I created my, my historical fiction series. And uh, there's, a, there's a place in there where you can contact me for, uh, for speaking engagements. Fantastic. Well, Jason, I want to thank you so much for taking your time to join me here at uh, the Wounded Blue Hour to share your amazing story. And, uh, and you and I will be talking much more in the future. I look forward to it. Thank you, sir. You know, having a guest like that um, makes it all worthwhile for me as the host of a, of a show like this. Uh, for him to share so deeply, you know, the, uh, the challenges and the travails and for him to come out on top is something that every American should hear uh, because all of us are facing challenges at one time or another during our lives, whether we're a police officer or whether we're a teacher or a baker. Uh, we're all going to face, we're all going to face trauma. Um, it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when and how we deal with that trauma will define us for the rest of our lives. So uh, that was uh, really a, uh, an amazing amazing guest. Uh, so uh, I urge you 
to go to thewoundedblue.org, thewoundedblue.org. It is the nationwide assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers. Uh, the men and women who are part of this organization uh, have, have sacrificed very much, just like Jason. And yet they want to continue to serve, and they do serve in the most amazing ways by being there for other officers who have faced the challenges physically, emotionally, and psychologically. Um, hit that donate button. Give what you can. Ten bucks a month. Whatever you can do. Now, if you're if you're a business owner, you're a business person. You have the financial wherewithal that you want to do more. I urge you to contact me personally, Randy at thewoundedblue.org. It's Randy at thewoundedblue.org. Uh, become a sponsor of one of the, the uh, one of the amazing amazing events we're going to be putting on soon. And uh, and if uh, if you can um, connect with me. If you can lend a hand. Uh, also, go to rescuing911.org to put your name on the list to get notified about when the book is coming out, probably a couple months. And it's, 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 it'll, it'll shock you uh, and it'll give you a way to actually become part of the solution uh, of, uh, of what has happened to our country. And uh, uh, so for all of you who are serving and protecting, you stay safe. Know that the Wounded Blue is here for you. If you're struggling, reach out to us. We exist for you. This is Randy Sutton on AmericaOutloud.com.